This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on frequency nine six two five kilohertz on the thirty one meter band to Southern Africa, and on eight zero two on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spomele Lezondi and I'm with Amanda Machaka, Jola Netulo and Netachimane. Your top stories. Gabon's President Ali Bongo has been officially inaugurated. The UN High Commission for Refugees has called for refugees hosted in the Democratic Republic of Congo to make sure they don't register as voters since the registration is only for Congolese citizens. Malawi's government has failed to protect the rights and livelihoods of people living in nascent mining communities. In economics, South African Agricultural Industry Association, AgriSA, has, with the help of the public, raised more than 1.1 million U.S. dollars. And in sports, one-day international captain A.B. de Villiers will undergo surgery to repair a troublesome left elbow. Here's Amanda Machaco with the news. Thank you, Spamelele. Good evening. Alibongo has been sworn in as Gabon's president after the country's top court controversially validated his fiercely contested election win, taking his family's reign over the country into a fifth decade. The event was attended by a handful of African leaders, including the presidents of Mali, Niger, Togo and Sao Tome, as well as the prime ministers of Chad, Senegal, the Central African Republic and Morocco. But most regional and continental heavyweights stayed away. Government spokesperson Alain Claude Billy Benze said Bongo wanted to install a unity government by this week or the start of next week. Bongo's second mandate has received a cool reception from the African Union and the United Nations, while the European Union voiced regret that the court had the count had not been transparent. The Muslim community in Nigeria's Osun state has appealed to Boko Haram insurgents to release the over 200 missing Chibok schoolgirls who abducted in 2014. The vice president of the Osun state Muslim community, Al-Haji Mustafa, said that the girls had been in captivity for a long time and would be best served if they were released. Mustafa, however, said it was wrong for the terrorist group to be labeled as an Islamic organization, saying Boko Haram in no way represented Islam. Mustafa's remarks came a few days after President Muhammadu Buhari requested the United Nations to help mediate with the terror group in order to free the girls. President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has asked Egyptians to join hands with the government to prevent a repeat of the tragedy that struck last week when a Euro-bound boat carrying hundreds of migrants sank off Egypt's coast, drowning at least 170 people. In his first public comments on the incident, al-Sisi said the government could not alone safeguard the country's poorest land and sea borders. Many of the Egyptians who were on board the boat were unescorted minors or single men in their early 20s looking for work in Western Europe. Egypt's economy has been battered by years of unrest since the 2011 uprising and now suffers from double-digit unemployment and inflation. 
Chairperson of South Africa's Parliament Justice Committee, Matele Mutsecha, says he is not concerned over the poor public interest in the appointment of new commissioners for the Human Rights Commission. The committee has received a list of 80 nominees to fill seven positions at the commission. The term of the current head of the HRC, Lawrence Mushwana, expires at the end of October. He has also been renominated. While the deadline for public comments or objections is at the end of this week, none have been received so far. But Musecha says that does not concern him. Not at all, because uh, that may mean two things. That uh, the quality of the applicant uh satisfy all interested parties uh secondly that there are no issues to raise about uh, uh, the uh, applicants And finally, the meeting of the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Flora and Fauna in its second day today discussed how to conserve and regulate global legal trade on wildlife. Will Travers is president of the Species Survival Network. He explains. Well, we haven't really got very far into the species side of things because the first two and a half days have been taken up with not species proposals. The species proposals have only really started to happen just now. And so we haven't got very far into that. What we have had is we've had some very interesting discussions about, for example, whether there should be some mechanism, some decision-making process which would look at ivory trade in the future, for example. We had a very lively debate yesterday in the committee looking at that issue and three votes were taken and the result of that process was that the mechanism that's been under discussion for the last 10 years has now come to a conclusion. That's the latest news. This is Africa Digest. Your time is 17.06 Central African time. Remember that you can engage with us. Find us on Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. That is Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. On email, we are on info at channelafrica.co.za. Info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, Gabon's President Ali Bongo has been officially inaugurated following this month's contested re-election. He will continue his family's more than 50 years of leadership in the Central African sub-region that has some of the world's longest-serving leaders, among them Cameroon. Equatorial Guinea, Congo Brazzaville, and Chad. What makes Central African leaders stay in power? Our correspondent Mokikinzaka takes a look. Gabon's national anthem is listened to by hundreds of Gabonese students gathered at the Central African State Embassy in Yaoundé to watch the inauguration of their president, Ali Bongo Ondimba, broadcast live on Gabon State Television. Among them is 23-year-old University of Chang political anthropology student, Aungbam Emir. The power is considered by a minority who is vieillissant, incapable of doing certain things. 
He says an aging minority that is not even close to the population to know their needs is confiscating power. He says even though they have the military and money, their authority is weak since they do not have the people's mandate. Ali Bongo's victory in the presidential election of August 27 was confirmed by the Constitutional Court after opposition leader Jean Ping claimed victory. Ali Bongo took over from his father, Omar Bongo, who kept the post for 42 years. The Bongo family has ruled Gabon for 50 years. He is just one of Central Africa's longest-serving leaders. Paul Bia of Cameroon has been president for 34 years. Obiangema of Equatorial Guinea just extended his 37-year rule. And Denis Sassongeso of Congo Brazzaville is now serving his third seven-year mandate. For the length of stay to be shortened or to be expanded, it permits uh, for them to stay in power either for a long time or not for a long time. 70% of the population of Central African states is made up of youths between 16 and 35 years, meaning that they have relatively young populations who have known only a leader in their respective countries. They have always been promised a change, as Charles Idris Deby, Cameroon's president Paul Biya, Obiang Gema of Equatorial Guinea, Denis Sasungesu of Congo Brazzaville and now Ali Bongo Ondimba of Gabon have all done a change youth say is taking so long to come. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. Botswana is marking 50 years since it attained independence from British rule. South Africa's High Commissioner for Botswana, Mdu Lembet, says the story of the country's role in helping to secure the freedom of its neighbours is quite fascinating. Freedom fighters such as former South African President Nelson Mandela used to cross through Botswana on their way to countries such as Zambia, Zimbabwe and Tanzania where they either sought refuge or military training. Some were housed by ordinary citizens of South Africans and Botswana are one people divided by colonial borders, but this did not stop them from assisting each other over the years. This made it a target for the apartheid South African government. One such attack took place in Khaburoni in 1985. Twelve people were killed. Today, South Africans and Botswana are not only related by blood, but also share economic and political ties. South African High Commissioner to Botswana Mdu Lembede says South Africa is a major trading partner with Botswana. We do have about 36 bilateral agreements and memorandum of understanding that operates between our two countries, which, which covers most of the areas of interest. And South Africa and Botswana cooperate on a large number of issues, including transport, trade and investment, health, education, environmental issues, water, science, technology, agriculture justice, immigration, energy, finance, and a number of other areas. South African companies that are invested in Botswana, that are major investors in Botswana. One man who participated in the politics of both Botswana and South Africa, Michael Dingake, says people of the two countries need each other. Dingake was a member of the ANC in the 1950s. He was imprisoned on Robben Island 
and released in the 1980s. He was then repatriated to Botswana, where he later assisted in founding the Botswana Congress Party. Dingake sees the need for Botswana and South Africans to continue working together. The government of Botswana, to start with, supported the struggle for freedom, you know, in South Africa in a number of ways. Now, ordinary Botswana supported the struggle in a number of ways. First of all, they harbored, you know, refugees running away from apartheid. Some people coming over here simply as refugees and some who were transiting through the country to Lusaka and uh, for military training, you know, abroad. They harbored them and looked after them. South Africa's Northwest Province has launched the Liberation Heritage Route as a way of honoring Botswana for its role during apartheid. MEC for Culture, Arts and Traditional Affairs, Ontlamezi Mochwari. The freedom fighters, those that fought for liberation of our country, passed through Northwest into Botswana and other countries. And there are communities that played predominant roles. There are individuals that played predominant roles, like, for instance, the people of Luhuruzi. Communities whose villages are straddled by the border share the same name, and some even have the same traditional leaders. One such village is Tidilamulomu, which is located on both sides of the border. The village belongs to Barulombo Mariba. Of in South Africa. As Barolo, we have got only one ancestors. And then there are some teachings that we need, you know, to, to, to know. As the country celebrates, it continues to be held in high regard as the bastion of peace and democracy in South Africa. Itumelen Kajani, Mahikeng, in the Northwest Province. Hello, uh, hi, I'm Salif Keita. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. And the time is 17.14 Central African time. Now the UN High Commission for Refugees has called on refugees hosted in the Democratic Republic of Congo to make sure they don't register as voters since the registration is only for Congolese citizens. The call is a reminder that comes as the voter registration that was launched in July in the North Obangi continues in that province of the Western DRC where thousands of refugees from the Central African Republic have found asylum. Jean-Noël Bamwe their reports from Kinshasa. The thousands of refugees from the neighboring Central African Republic have found asylum in the former province of Equator before it could be divided in four provinces. One of those new provinces is the North Ubangi, and that's indeed where this country's independent National Electoral Commission has launched the voter registration last July 31st for the upcoming elections. 
The Electoral Commission has planned the operation would take three months and indeed both the UN High Commission for Refugees well known as UNHCR and the National Committee for Refugees well known as CNR used the opportunity to sensitize refugees on the operation. Both organizations explained that none of the refugees would try and register as a voter since they are foreigners, their country is the Central African Republic and the voter registration is an operation regarding only people of the Democratic Republic of Congo because they are the ones who will vote during the upcoming elections. Two months have then gone and the operation is underway. The UNHCR believes refugees know that they are not part of the operation and that they have to respect this country's law but has decided to pass the message once more as a reminder. Simon Ingalbert Lubuku is from the UNHCR. With uh, the CNR, the National Committee for Refugees, we have sensitized refugees that this registration is only for Congolese citizens and they know that they, they are not uh, part of the exercise. I think the sensitization is enough and uh, they know that they are not part of uh, the exercise. They will not go for the voter registration. Uh, the refugees must respect the law. That is the message. They have to respect the law. They are not part of the registration exercise. They have to stay uh, in the camp or in the host families doing daily business. The voter registration is for Congolese citizen. That is the message. The voter registration in the North Ubangi is to be concluded end October and that's when the Independent National Electoral Commission will have to move the operation to the other 25 provinces of the Democratic Republic of Congo, including the capital city, Kinshasa. The voter registration is scheduled to be concluded next year, end June. After all, the 26 provinces will have been covered according to the Independent National Electoral Commission, and it's only after that time that people of the Democratic Republic of Congo can cast their votes. On the other side, all the election-related issues, including reviewed dates, are expected in a clear electoral calendar to be released after the political dialogue will be concluded, although this is still suspended since last Friday. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Channel Africa 1 on Twitter, 1718 Central African Time. Now, Lesotho's biggest political party appears to be wrecked by divisions. The send-off revolves around a government fleet contract awarded to South African company Bidvest. The National Executive Committee of Prime Minister Pagarita Musisidi Democratic Congress says the process was corrupt and the contract should be terminated. But the Minister of Finance, Mampoko Kagetla, from the DC, says it was a approved by the coalition cabinet and due process was followed. Tsakwanangatana reports. Lesotho is governed by a seven-party coalition government. The Minister of Finance from the biggest partner, Democratic Congress, D.C., has awarded a fleet management tender to Bidvest, but her party, D.C., called a media briefing to announce its standpoint that the tender process was corrupt. Refilo Dijobo is the Deputy Secretary-General of the Democratic Congress. We really see the number of issues that 
you can say there is a corrupt con- conduct in this transaction therefore we cannot support anything that is corrupt that that has got a corrupt conduct therefore we cannot really support the bid first transaction that business transaction at all yes i mean avis was only taking 1% of the gdp uh, of our economy it was paid roughly 33 million 35 million per month uh, bidvest bank limited is taking that between 62 and 64 million of our, our national purse that means it's really exorbitant for basutu it's really heavy on the shoulders of basutu to, to maintain that it's not sustainable anyhow the finance minister dr mampono khakitla is also the party's treasurer she is accused of taking and offering bribes to award the tender to Bidvest and ordering police to arrest, torture and kill whistleblowers, some of them youth leaders in the DC. Khaketla has filed a defamation suit against her accusers. She says she has not seen the party's statement and she declined to comment until she does. She was also not present at the briefing even though as treasurer she is a member of the NEC. Democratic Congress says it does not have the power to discipline its members who are deployed in government and only the prime minister can do that. But the party has a duty to stand up when its principles are transgressed. It's only ideal that the party that is leading the government should be the one really uh, ensuring the checks and balances or balances of how the government is run. Yeah, you see, we have made promises. People bank uh, on us, they believe that we can effect a change in terms of really cre- creating jobs for the youth. The unemployment is really skyrocketing in this country. We have a number of problems that are pressing uh, in our communities, local communities, like we have no roads, we have no water, we have so many problems, social problems that the communities are expecting the, 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 the government to deliver. So if we can uh, just go like that without telling the communities that what you see happening now is not DC but certain individuals who have been given a responsibility. Also not present at the media briefing were party leader and prime minister Bagadita Musisidi, presumably because he's attending the UN General Assembly in New York, deputy leader and minister of police Munyane Mulelegi and secretary general Ralichate Mokosi were also not present but the DC insists it is not divided. Again. This is a big organization that has got its own norms of doing things. We have got our constitution and it stipulates that all the resolutions of the NEC are binding. So there is no one who can come in here and say he disassociates himself or herself from the resolution that was made in a city, a formal sitting of the NEC. And uh, of course we don't have uh, divisions in the committee. Last weekend, coalition parties organized a march to deliver a petition showing support in the Prime Minister. The DC says it made a decision not to be part of that march, but did not prevent any of its members from attending. DC leader and Prime Minister Bakadi Tamusisidi accepted the memorandum of support from the march and addressed it. Meanwhile, his deputy, Munyane Muleleki, addressed another rally where he condemned that march. What started as a complaint about a fleet management contract has developed into stark differences of opinion in the ruling party. But the question is, is the Democratic Congress showing political maturity and freedom of expression or falling apart? Only time will tell. I'm Takwana Ngadani in Maseru, Lesotho. 
1723 Central African Time. Thank you very much for staying with Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumelele Zondi and I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Now, students protest, student protests continue across South Africa, calls for students to return to their classes, mount as fears that the 2016 academic year could be compromised by the current demonstrations. Former students of the Johannesburg-based and world-renowned University of Vatashrand are calling for the current student protests over fees to end. They fear that these protests are tarnishing the reputation of the institution and other universities across the country. Last week, a fresh wave of protests demanding free education erupted after the Minister of Higher Learning, Blade Nzimande, announced that tertiary institutions could increase fees by 8% at the most. Since then, there's been a flaring up of violent protests in various universities under the hashtag Fees Must Fall. To talk to us more about this, we're joined on the line by Vitzbox person Sharona Patel. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Sharona. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, Sharona, let's start by maybe asking you um, what the former students of Vitz have told you. Okay, so uh, the students are saying that they currently directly with government, that they want free education immediately, that is now, and that they will shut down universities in order to send a strong message to the minister that uh, they reject the proposals that he put on the table last week. Mm. And Vitz is saying that this is not a decision Vitz can make. Uh, absolutely not. We don't have the resources to offer free education. We receive about a third of our funding from the state, about a third from student fees, and a third from third stream income or contract research, etc. And so we're not in a position to run this university without government subsidy and without fees. Um, So we are saying that we do believe that we can achieve access to quality higher education for the poor, but it won't happen overnight. We would have to uh, work on a long-term plan and engage with the relevant stakeholders, including government, the private sector, and others, in order to achieve that goal. Um, have you been engaging with the students in the last week? Sorry, have we? Have you been engaging with the students in the last week? Well, we've reached out to the students. However, they're saying that they don't need anything off the university, so they don't need to meet with us. They, um, In fact, today we sent a formal letter asking for an engagement with the Student Representative Council, and as at other universities, they've said that um, this is a national fight. So they don't have a memorandum of demand. They don't have anything to hand over to us. Um, their fight is with national government. This makes it extremely difficult because it, it's uh, kind of out of our hands and we're in the middle uh, between the students and government. And the university is um, on closure at the moment. Until when? Well, the university um, suspended all activities. Until further notice, we are, uh, we are holding a poll this week, that's on Thursday, to determine what the majority of students and staff want to do. <coughs> Excuse me. Once the poll is complete, we're hoping to have the results by Friday. And if the majority of people want to go back to class on Monday, we are then going to call on the police to protect every um, single lecture theater, lecture hall, etc., to ensure that the academic program can go ahead. Now, I think uh, from Bits' perspective, we would uh, are calling on the 35,000 voices that are silent in this entire um, scenario. We've got 1,000 students or so who are protesting. 
We've got 35,000 who are writing to us privately. So we've got thousands of emails, phone calls, etc., from people wanting to go back to class. And so as a university, we'd like to say, we'll see what the majority says, and that will give us an indication of uh, whether we can reopen on Monday. Right. Um, how is that process going to work? Um, are you just taking in emails? Are you, um, how are you engaging with those students that do want to go back to class? So we've got uh, about a 99% uh, of all cell phone numbers uh, of our students. We're missing about 270, and we're following up on those 270 at the moment. Um, so we're hoping that um, we can get an electronic vote to happen on Thursday. That means that we will send SMSs to students, and they will reply via SMS. Um, for those on campus, there are there's still wireless facilities if they need to use those. And for staff, we'll use a combination of email links and SMSs. <coughs> um, there are reports that there's a staff member who passed on as a result of the strike. Are you able to share any details on this? Yes, sir. we can confirm that... Uh, one of the cleaners, um, he's not a good staff member, but he belongs to a cleaning company that works for this. Um, but he passed away last week. Um, last Tuesday, we had um, some students going to a residence, and they released fire extinguishers. Um, following that, this uh, employee of the provider then felt quite sick and was taken to our campus health and wellness center where he was treated. The nurse then referred him to a hospital where he was treated for three days further. On Friday evening, he was discharged, and uh, he went home. Uh, during the night, he developed complications, and he was rushed by his family to hospital, but he passed away um, uh, while he was being transported to hospital on Friday night. Now, we don't know what the cause of death is, and uh, we are still waiting for that. We are also in contact with the family now. They've given us permission to release his name, and uh, we, we did so today. However, <laughs> excuse me. The family is saying that uh, so, so we've been in contact with them and with the service provider, and we will continue to be in contact with them for the coming days. Sharona, I'm going to ask you to stay on the line just for perhaps one more question, and then we'll take sure. the, uh, the news headlines first, and we'll come back to you for that question. Sure. It's time for news headlines. Yes, Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Spumelele. Good evening. The Muslim community in Nigeria's Osun state has appealed to Boko Haram insurgents to release the over 200 missing Chibok schoolgirls who were abducted in 2014. The vice president of the Osun state Muslim community said that the girls had been in captivity for a long time and would be best served if they were released. President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has asked Egyptians to join hands with the government to prevent a repeat of the tragedy that struck last week when a Europe-bound boat carrying hundreds of migrants sank off Egypt's coast, drowning at least 170 people. And Alibongo has been sworn in as Gabon's president after the country's top court controversially validated his fiercely contested election win, taking his family's reign over the country into a fifth decade. Those are news headlines. This is Africa Digest.
It's 17.31 Central African Time. Thank you very much, Amanda, for that update. If you're just joining us, we still have Shriona Patel from Vit University in South Africa, and we're talking about the Fees Must Fall campaign and the protests that are currently taking place. Now, Shirona, one last question. Um, former students of Vit have asked students to stop protesting, to go back to class, and they say that this is tarnishing the image of the university. Um, have they spoken to you about this at all? Yes, so uh, if you're talking about alumni, we've had um, three main requests from alumni. The first is that the university should take um, strong action against those who have been found um, to be violating the rights of others, um, to have destroyed property, and uh, those who are protesting and impinging on the rights of others. So I think that's what alumni are saying. They're also saying that uh, they are concerned that if the university uh, continues and the protests continue, that perceptions of the university will be affected and in the long term this will affect the university's rankings. As you know, which has now been ranked in uh, four international rankings as either number one or two, uh, and we've overtaken the number one ranking um, this year for many of the international rankings um, that is number one in Africa. Um, and the alumni are feeling that we would compromise this position now because many of the international rankings are based on perceptions and uh, this will impact on our position in these rankings. And then lastly, um, they want to guarantee the quality of the education, the quality of the degree that comes from this. If we lose an academic year, which we absolutely cannot afford to do, it does mean that um, the, uh, we need to question then the quality of education. Does that mean that if students must out on three weeks of work, that we can make it up for this year, or will we have to go into next year? Now, from management's perspective, we've said that we absolutely remain committed to finishing the academic program this year. We are two weeks away from exams, and we've put in place contingency plans uh, for the academic program as well as for the examinations. Um, from this side as well, we must uh, emphasize that we've got 77% of our students are, are black African students, and many of them are, in fact, the majority of them are from yes. poor households. And if we lose this academic year, it impacts on all our students, but it impacts most um, most difficultly, I think, on those who need to support their families, who need to get out into the workplace, who need to get jobs. Um, it will affect the number of doctors we produce next year. It will affect the number of teachers we need, the number of nurses we need, etc. Mm. in the labor market. Many people also have to write professional exams. The accountants, for example, need to write the exams like, uh, and, and need to write independent external exams as well. And um, they won't be allowed to do so if they don't uh, get through the which exams this year. So I think there's a lot at stake, particularly for um, people from poor backgrounds. Yeah. Sure, Patel, we're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. Um, it's 17.34 Central African time. We have run out of time. Thank you very much for joining us, Sharona. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, Sharona Patel there is with Wits University in Johannesburg. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka 
in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel African in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Ntakwa Nangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1736 Central African time. Now, more than 90% of the world's population lives uh, lives rather in areas with unsafe pollution levels, contributing to strokes, heart disease, lung cancer, and other health problems. This is the crux of a new report by the World Health Organization, or WHO. The report underscores the growing risk that air pollution poses to virtually every demographic group across the globe. To speak to us more about this, we're joined on the line by Dr. Annette Pruce, Uston, who who is a scientist at the World Health Organization. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Hello, hello. Um, indeed, these are uh, the latest findings from our global modeling of exposure to air pollution. And uh, so we just released the data also in an interactive map that everybody can consult worldwide and uh, compare themselves to WHO guideline levels. And that is how we actually found out that more than Nine, a stunning 92% of the population of this globe exceeds guideline levels. Uh, what model did you use when you were compiling your research? So we have uh, 3,000 ground measurement monitors. I mean, the countries have them all around the world, and uh, which still leaves wide gaps of uh, unmeasured air pollution worldwide. So what we used is a combination of satellite data. So we have the globe in satellite uh, data about every 10 by 10 kilometers, and we calibrated that model with the 3,000 ground measurements. So for the first time, we are we were able to get quite a complete picture of the world's exposure to air pollution. Mm. Um, and how do we know that the air that we um, that we living in in different parts of the world is polluted? Uh, well, this is um, from the satellite. Uh, measurements. So the satellite measurement combined with these ground measurements uh, provide us this picture. We do also know quite a bit about the industrial activity, the transport activity, etc. So this uh, actually, when we had a look at the the world spread of air pollution, it matched quite well with what we know about the industrial activity, the population density, etc. You think that every demographic in the world is affected by this. Um, are developed countries affected equally as um, developing countries, or is there a difference there? Well, low- and middle-income countries are generally more affected by air pollution than high-income countries, mainly for reasons that often the, the cars are uh, older or have uh, do not comply with the same strict um, emission regulations, 
equally for the industry. They have less strict regulations. They tend to have less strict regulations in low- and middle-income countries. And the same goes for uh, energy production. And the last issue is still is the energy used by households, where many um, low- and middle-income countries still use solid fuels for cooking and sometimes heating. So generally speaking, that is why um, low-income countries are the most affected, is because yes. the emission standards are, are um, less strict. Mm. Um, Annette, just tell us about your recommendations quickly. Uh, I think there's something for all of us to do. There's something for the governments, which is in terms of regulations or rethinking maybe their energy and transport systems. But there's also something to do for uh, households or for individuals. Rethink our um, way to consume, um, consume at household level, but also consume in terms of the transport mode we chose so there is really uh, there is lots of things to do both at individual and at country level. All right, thank you very much for joining us. Okay, you're welcome. That is Dr. Annette Prus-Ustun, who's a scientist at the World Health Organization, joining us from Geneva in Switzerland. This is Africa Digest. South Africa has today joined the rest of the world to commemorate World Tourism Day. The global theme for this year is Tourism for All, Promoting Universal Accessibility. The theme is derived from the United Nations World Tourism Organization. It seeks to ensure that everyone has access to tourism products despite their disability, race and age, amongst others. Provincial MEC for the Department of Economic and Small Business Development, Tourism and Environmental Affairs, Sam Mashinini, speaks to Wandile Kalipa. The Species Survival Network is a group of non-government organizations. It was founded more than 20 years ago, and we now have more than 100 individual member organizations that are part of the network. And our focus is very, very strict. It is only on CITES. It is only on international trade. These organizations may do many other things in their normal lives, but when we come together as the Species Survival Network, we focus only on CITES. What is it in particular on CITES that you're focusing on with regards to species? Well, you see, at the conference, which is where we are now, there will be many papers presented, papers that will be looking at whether a species needs greater protection under CITES, maybe it needs less protection under CITES. There may be documents that look at the way that the convention operates or looks at wildlife crime and comes up with ideas and solutions to try and improve wildlife crime law enforcement. And what we do is we look at all the papers that are presented to the conference of the parties and we analyze them and then we offer our view as to whether this is a good idea or maybe this is an idea that needs to be moderated to be changed in some way or whether we think it's not a good idea. Now looking at the meeting as it continues now, I think this is the third day, what could you say are the major issues that uh, has been on the table so far with regards to the conservation of some of the world species? Well, we haven't really got 
very far into the species side of things because the first two and a half days have been taken up with not species proposals. The species proposals have only really started to happen just now. And so we haven't got very far into that. What we have had is we've had some very interesting discussions about, for example, whether there should be some mechanism, some decision-making process which would look at ivory trade in the future, for example. We had a very lively debate yesterday in Committee uh, 2 looking at that issue and three votes were taken. And the result of that process was that the mechanism that's been under discussion for the last 10 years has now come to a conclusion. It's come to an end. It hasn't actually come to a conclusion, hasn't found anything, it hasn't actually offered a mechanism, but the process has come to an end. And everyone agrees that, uh, or the majority agree, that that process has not been terribly productive and we ought to think maybe about something else or abandon it completely. Why abandoning it completely? Well, because when the mechanism was first discussed in 2007, the levels of poaching elephants across Africa were very low. In fact, some populations were definitely recovering across many parts of Africa indeed. And uh, the amount of ivory being smuggled out of Africa and intercepted in particularly the Far East also was not particularly high. But then in 2008, as I'm sure you know and many of your listeners know, there was a sale of ivory from southern Africa, about just over 100 tons of ivory, was sold to Japan and China. And subsequent to that, we've seen a very high level of poaching. Some people are suggesting 30,000 elephants a year are now being poached. And I can tell you that, for example, in Tanzania, over the last uh, five years, or between 2009 and 2015, they lost 1,000 elephants a month on average. 1,000 elephants every single month was the average for 60 months. So you can see that the impact has been very high. That's what's changed. When we first started discussing the mechanism, poaching was low and the ivory trade was low. Now the poaching is high and the ivory trade is high, it seems very inappropriate to be discussing how we shall trade ivory in the future. And I think what that does is it gives some incentive to the poachers, it gives some support to those people who want to exploit the ivory situation, and we don't want to give them that support at all. That is Will Travers, who is the president of the Species Survival Network, talking to Wandile Khalipa. It's time for Economic News. Here's Jolana Tulu. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. Lawmakers in the Upper House of Nigeria's Parliament have agreed to investigate an allegation that South Africa's MTN illegally transferred $13.92 billion out of the West African country. Africa's biggest telecoms company declined to comment on the decision of the Senate in Nigeria. MTN shares were down by 4.20%. The investigation threatens to raise tensions between Nigeria and the South African firm just three months after MTN agreed to pay a reduced fine of $1.05 billion in a settlement with the Abuja government over unregistered SIM cards. The move comes as Nigeria, Africa's biggest economy, is in recession for the first time in more than 20 years. 
Secretary-General of South Africa's ruling ANC, Gwede Mantashe, has assured investors that South Africa is stable. He says there where there have been problems, the ruling party has been able to overcome them. Mantashe was speaking at the 7th Big Five Investor Annual Conference held in Cape Town in the Western Cape Province. There are fears that rating agencies could downgrade the country to junk status in December because of low economic growth and what is viewed as politically instable rather political instability. He says the ANC as the governing party never shies away from tackling matters of public interest head on. country is stable politically. It is stable economically. It is stable socially. I will talk to those issues a little bit. Um, and any challenges, because there are challenges that are there in our country, as a governing party, we're always ready to deal with them, address them, try to find solutions. And that is the assurance I can give you that the ANC never run for cover when there are challenges. Russia will restore imports of Egyptian fruit and vegetables within three to five days. This is according to its food watchdog, Rosal Kanadzo. Cairo imposed a ban on wheat imports containing the smallest amount of a common grain fungus. Egypt removed its zero-tolerance policy on the fungus last week and reverted to an international standard, paving the way for the Russian wheat to be reshipped. This lift does not apply to Egyptian potatoes, which will be discussed during a visit by Russian officials to Cairo in October or November. Moscow imported Egyptian fruit and vegetables worth around $350 million, making it one of Cairo's top buyers and sold about $800 million in wheat to Egypt in 2015. Morocco's central bank held its benchmark interest rate at 2.25% on Tuesday, saying its inflation forecast was consistent with its price stability objective, even as it forecast 4% growth in 2017. The bank said it expected inflation to remain around 1.6% in 2016, a fall to 1.2% in 2017, anticipating a rebound in agricultural output in 2017, the worst drought in decades to hit North Africa, the bank said growth would jump to 4% next year from an estimated 1.4% in 2016. And finally, Samsung Electronics says it has got back around 60% of recalled Galaxy Note 7 smartphones sold in South Korea, the United States and Europe. In a statement, Samsung said it was focused on replacing all affected devices quick as quickly and efficiently as possible. The world's top smartphone maker announced a global recall of at least 2.5 million Note 7 smartphones in 10 markets due to faulty batteries causing some phones to catch fire. Analysts say the cost of the recall and lost sales could wipe off nearly $5 billion in revenues for Samsung this year. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 13.69 to the South African rand, at 10.30 to the Botswana Pula, and at 9.98 to the Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.77 to the British pound and at 0.89 to the euro. On the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,326 and platinum at $1,024 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $46.07 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Chola. Neto Chamane has a sports news.
Good evening, sport fans. With your latest sport news at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Chemani. Starting off with cricket news. Standard Bank Proteas One Day International ODI captain A.B. de Villas will undergo surgery to repair a troublesome left elbow impingement injury after failing to respond to rehab and treatment. De Villas failed a fitness test earlier today and will miss the upcoming home and away series against Australia due to the surgery. He will have surgery to the elbow early next week and the target is to hopefully have him back for the Sri Lankan home series over the Christmas period. South Africa's on-form striker Elisa Rogers has thanked senior national team Bafanabafana coach Sheikhs Mashaba for selecting him as part of the squad that takes on Burkina Faso in the 2018 Russia World Cup qualifiers in Ogadogo, Burkina Faso next Saturday. Speaking at his club, Bidvest Vets training grounds ahead of the MTN8 final against a rampant Mamelodi Sundowns in Bombela Nelspreet on Saturday, Roger says he is ready to serve his nation once again. Um, the Bafana call-up is uh, just something that you know uh, I think all players dream of, dream of having. And yeah, it comes with hard work, you know, and I believe it paid off. Um, but for me now, we still have to continue, you know, to work hard. And, you know, we're in the final, we're playing Sundowns. We, we still want to do well. We want to win something, you know, because that's what we play for. And yeah, I'm very excited. And I'm just focusing on, on, on continuing on my uh, good performances, you know, and also getting the goals. The results of the scans on Hurricanes injured ankle were better than expected, but there is no time frame on the Tottenham Hotspur strikers' return to action, according to manager Mauricio Pochettino. Kane scored the winner in Spurs' Premier League clash against Sunderland before being carried off in the 87th minute after turning his ankle while making a tackle. There was a speculation the England international last season's Premier League top goalscorer could face two months on the sidelines. Just uh, half an hour ago, we received the the informant, the report about uh, the scan and it's much much better than we expect and maybe we can reduce the the time but we are happy was very positive the scan it's for that i uh, we are very 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 happy about this this uh, new and but still we cannot give time how long will be will be his recovery and but it's sure that uh, we are happy because the scanner uh, was much better than we expect. I am not a doctor, I am not a doctor, and you know, it's, it's difficult to say one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Uh, it's not easy, but it's true that it's much, much, much better than we, we expect, and uh, for that I think it's very positive, the scanner today. Manchester City midfielder Yaya Torres says players and fans may suffer as a result of a FIFA's decision to disband an anti-racism task force. The 33-year-old was part of the task force set up in 2013 to help tackle racism. FIFA General Secretary Fatma Sambati of Samora said it had a specific mandate which it has fully fulfilled. Torres, who was racially abused by CSK Moscow fans in October 2013, said, Are FIFA being complacent ahead of a World Cup in Russia? Finally, in tennis news, Serena Williams' withdrawal from the Wuhan Open was unfortunate, according to the tournament's director, Fabrice Choquet, after the American star ruled herself out of the injury hit tournament for the second year in a row. The 22-time Grand Slam champion pulled out of the Chinese event and next week's China Open in Beijing, with a shoulder injury rubbing off its best-known player. Williams has only made it to the hot and humid Wuhan Open once in 2014, when she retired from her first match against Alice Connett with illness. Last year she was also injured and skipped the entire Asian swing, a busy period which culminates in the season-ending WTA finals in Singapore. Thank you for tuning to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
This is Africa Digest. Let's recap our top stories at 1755. Gabon's President Ali Bongo has been officially inaugurated. The UN High Commission for Refugees has called for refugees hosted in the DRC to make sure they don't register as voters. And Malawi's government has failed to protect the rights and livelihoods of people living in nascent mining communities. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Pumele Lezondi, producer Tracy Pumgard, technical producer. 